listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Are you officially the Smokinoggin yet this summer? Uh, it has been smoky a few days, and we had a fire less than, I would say, two kilometers from our house yesterday. So, um, and it's not even summer yet, right? Uh, so that's, I think, summer, summer right now is going, you know, spring, watch, you know, step back, hold my beer, because we're not even into <laughs> summer yet. But the answer is yes, it's been smoked out. And I think that's from the north. And then we had, yeah, yesterday we had a fire within two kilometers of our house that they managed to get a hold on. So wow. that seems to happen every year uh, for us. And uh, hopefully it's not multiple times this year, but it probably will be. Yeah, we're just, <clears throat> we're just like a little bit hazy. And you get a bit of that orange, orange sunset, but the haze kind of looks more like like uh, like gray fog almost as opposed to that that amber smoke stuff. Yeah. So we're quite a ways away from wherever this smoke is coming. So we're we're pretty lucky. But <clears throat> as so you know, far. both of us like like you know we want some fires, but we want them in the right places for wildlife, right? So <laughs> a few years ago, outside of Cranbrook, there was the one up um, in the sheep country there between. Wassa and and uh fort steel there kind of and it was like no don't go put that out <laughs> and it's <Yeah>. like <laughs> yeah yeah your we'll phone in the 1800 number going yeah no there's another one over there move all your crews <laughs> across the valley <laughs> leave that one go yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 well i feel like our place i mean i'm getting to the point where it's like all our pictures are all at um the in-laws place in town so we don't have to worry about stuff but i mean it's getting to the point where it's just like let's just get it over with like just burn it there's gonna be lots of mule deer after that let's just get it over with because yeah yeah kind of it's getting old kind of get over the uh the uh the losses of <clears throat> things you don't have and then just just pick her up and get going again and then you know you're good for the rest of your lifetime because you're kind of in this this uh, fuel management. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. And, and our, we'll have all kinds of mule deer at our place. So, I mean, it's yeah, kind of totally. a win-win in that respect. I mean, when I did forest <laughs> fire training, they were always talking about the safest place to go is back into the burnt out area if you're ever yep. caught in one. So yep. that's where you should build your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, I think I think all I want if I leave is like the dogs and like my my hunting rifles. Other, yeah, ours other is, that, ours is make yeah. you. Ours is horses. horses. Just get the horses out. That's it. We get the horses yeah. out, and if we're if I'm mm. not around or whatever, open up the gates and head out because our our roads are one way in, one way out as well. So, you know, prioritize getting out, and all all of our yeah, all the pictures are there in town. All the stuff that we've decided we would be worried about is disappears for the summer from our place. So, mm. we're we're. Uh, we're ready for it, I guess, as ready as you can be. Well, hopefully you stay safe. I think you're the same way. It's like we 
from a wildlife perspective we know how good fire is how much it's desperately needed on the landscape but it is just it's just heartbreaking to see when it hits communities and homes and rural areas and stuff and it's just uh it's preventable um as you know if we get more controlled fire back on the landscape that's a whole other podcast which we can we'll fit in one one day maybe early fall when it's back to burning season but uh now I'm looking forward to this this episode here. So, um, hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. We were out and about on a, I think it was the first Hunter Conservationist outing we've had since, well, post-pandemic. It's been a long time. We got out and. Did a cool, uh, cool tour of a of a very cool property. You guys will hear in in close upcoming episode. But we were cruising around all day in a Toyota, and it wasn't a Toyota from Alpine Toyota. However, we went through some muddy sections and some rough sections and highway driving. We got the works, and uh, they're pretty uh, pretty decent in the off road areas. It wasn't crazy crazy like hill climb Rubicon rock crawl type stuff but anyway so there's a point to be made there for toyotas and their off-road capabilities be a good hunting truck is all i was thinking absolutely as always thanks to the folks down at alpine toyota for their continuing support of what we do here at the hunter conservationist you bet thanks alpine uh jesse zeman Director of the BC Wildlife Federation, Executive Director of the BC Wildlife Federation. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for uh, having us on. Yeah, having having you on. Not like you got a team of people behind you holding up cue cards, or maybe you do. We can't see in front. You got you got somebody there with the teleprompter. What? Yeah, Yeah. that's what they call it, the teleprompter. (laughs) Little mic in your ear. Don't answer that question. He's baiting you. Stay on topic. Read the cards. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, no uh, team today, I guess. But yeah, we appreciate you, um, you having us on or having the BC Valley Federation on and then talking about science and appreciate what you do. Yeah, I know we love love having you on, love love your perspective. I'm So I'm super excited about um, what you're going to tell us about this research project. So last year you completed your master's thesis. It uh, was something that was kind of getting in the way of life and work and involvement with the BC Wildlife Federation and you were trying to get this done but still trying to do the best thing for wildlife and biodiversity in the province and so you finally got her done and uh, got your got your master's and your thesis is what we're going to talk about today, your research thesis for your master's study. And um, it's a research project that's about conservation and about wildlife management. Um, it's based in British Columbia. I think its applicability can probably stretch across Western Canada for sure, if not in into Eastern Canada as well. Hunters are hunters. And I think there's some, some common threads. And one of the things that excites me about this is we talk a lot with scientists on the show about wildlife science and we, we talk about science-based wildlife management and it's always about something about putting a radio collar on some kind of furry mammal um, and, and seeing what they do and then what that, what that 
gives us for knowledge to to better management and, and conservation here the beast is a little bit different because it's it's humans it's hunters and this would fall into i guess the bucket of social science in conservation and it's looking at um what hunters think what they're willing to do what their perceptions are what their um you know values are what you know what do they like what do they don't like sort of thing so it, it, this is a really important part of conservation that i think we just don't have enough of in canada is is the human part of conservation so uh i'm excited about this now so basically kind of in a nutshell your thesis looked at a um a sample size of resident hunters in the province of British Columbia and you'll explain this as we go but essentially you were looking at what is this group of hunters willingness to pay for conservation and wildlife management uh, I think you used the moose uh, moose hunting and the moose tag sort of as this as a, uh, like the surrogate of hunters willingness to pay are hunters willing to pay more if the money does certain things, how, how do these people feel about this? What, what do they think? And then there was some um, preferences around wildlife governance models and, and a few things like that that was an uh, integral part of your research. So to kick this off, I'll let you kind of take, walk through your research and tell us like what you did, what you found and why it's important and, and what you hope will be done with it. But I, I probably know the answer to this. What what about this is near and dear to Jesse's heart that made you pursue this this particular thesis topic? Okay, yeah, um, yeah. So as it relates to that question, I mean, you, yeah, you you talk about <clears throat> being able to go out and call our wildlife and do all this research, and so you know, I guess the question before that is, how are we going to pay to do that? And so when we start to dig into this, what we find in British Columbia over time is that, you know, the province of BC has essentially defunded um, not only fish and wildlife management as we know it, but also renewable resource management. So anything, you know, land, water, air, forest, fish and wildlife, you know, those budgets as a proportion of the provincial budget have been cut by uh, probably 80 plus percent here over the last 40 years. Um, both are at record lows. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's great to go out and do science when we look at the jurisdictions all around us, you know, Idaho, especially Montana, um, Alberta for parts, they're doing some phenomenal work. And here in BC, um, you know, uh, we talk about endangered caribou quite often the province of British Columbia relies on uh, researchers out of University of Alberta and University of Montana to do research on endangered caribou that live in BC. So I guess the, you know, there's a, there's two pieces for that. Uh, we all care about fish and wildlife and we all want it conserved. And so the question is, how do we pay for that? Um, and so we know there's no money and, you know, hunters, hunters say a lot of things and hunters are a very, um, you know, heterogeneous group. There's a lot of different opinions and different takes. And so this research kind of lets us talk to everybody who's interested in moose or has purchased a moose license and then figure out as a population what people want to see. 
and uh, you know, through the research, I think we kind of either prove uh, what people say or we disprove what people say. But either way, uh, we have some findings that are really interesting and certainly, you know, exceeded what I ever thought we would uh, we would find. Interesting. So, so in, one of the things hunters, just, yeah, I agree, say say a lot of things. Um, sometimes it can make your eyes roll. But so it is part of this, and I think I've heard this too, and you guys have probably heard it as well. Um, hunters have always, you know, hundred dollars have always been used for conservation. It contributes to the economy. We pay surcharges that go into uh, habitat and wildlife projects, and often we hear hunters say, you know, hey, if a moose tag was $200, I'd pay for it. If it was making more moose on the landscape and they were, you know, doing all of this wonderful stuff that I see in the United States, if they were doing that here, yes, I'd, I'd pay. So now you were, you're sort of like, okay, like, let's put this to the test, or, you know, with a, with a series of, of questions and, and stuff. It's like, are you really willing to do that? I think was part part of what you were you were testing the truthfulness of hunters. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You you are and you aren't in the sense. Yeah, so we were looking at really their preferences and willingness to pay um, for for moose while moose management, but as a surrogate for wildlife management. And so, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> as I said, if you want to take care of stuff, you need money, right? Um, you know, a you know, money, money isn't the be all and end all, but it's really important if you uh, want to understand how the environment works and how wildlife interacts with habitat and predators and humans and all of those things. So, you know, in BC over time, everybody's expectations have increased in BC, you know, every, the regulatory complexity has increased. And you know that even in your day job, Mark, like there, the province is throwing more legislation and regulation at individual managers, whether they're registered foresters or biologists. So the expectations are higher, but at the same time, they've cut funding and they've cut the number of people to do the job. And so what falls out of the bottom of that is our ability to do science declines and with that wildlife declines. So that's kind of like the progression. And so what we wanted to know under that is, is you know, what do moose hunters want to see how are they willing to face trade-offs and then what are they willing to pay for those changes? And so the approach we took is a lot different than kind of the normal contingent valuation stuff, which is kind of like what you say, well, I'm willing to pay $200. I'm willing to pay $300. I'm willing to pay $50. But what does that mean? What, what are you willing to pay for and how much are you willing to pay? Cause we can make really small changes or we can make really big changes. And so the question is what's really important to hunters And then across this spectrum of, you know, there's no moose in the bush or there's moose everywhere, or there's no hunters in the bush or there's hunters everywhere, where do hunters live on that spectrum? And so we use what's called a choice experiment. So a choice experiment allows us to understand the trade-offs that respondents are willing to make. So, you know, a great example of this would be, you know, in, in marketing, they do this a lot. So like car companies, let's say Ford, will go out and say, okay, we can give you a car that gets 80 miles to the gallon and has, you know, 60 horsepower, but you're never going to be able to do the speed limit. Or we could sell you a car with a thousand horsepower that gets six gallons to the minute. And it can have power locks and air conditioning and auto start and an autopilot and all of those different things. And so what we're trying to build out of this or to understand is, you know, what kind of car do moose hunters want? 
So that's essentially what we do. And then we force you in, a, in, a, in essence through this survey to make those trade-offs. So we go, here's what the world looks like right now. Here's where the money goes. Here's how many moose there are. Here's how often you get drawn. Here's what governance looks like, you know, those kind of questions. And then here's like an alternate state. And then what you do is you would vote on those two approaches. So, you know, statistically what we get at over, over a large sample is we understand where people are facing those trade-offs and where they want to make those changes. And so a lot of like the stuff that we see commonly around non-market valuation, so strategic behavior where people are trying to game the system, this method kind of deals with that and gets us to a better answer. Maybe that's the best way to explain it. But you're, huh, you're okay. ultimately, yep. ultimately, we're putting a bunch of different cars in front of you and giving you your current car. And you're going to, by making choices, you're going to tell us what kind of optimum car exists for you, what kind of options you have, and then how much you're willing to pay for it. And so part of that, when it comes to like the hunter, they're going to have to think in their own brain and reveal to you through their choices. It's like, you're, you're going to come out of this and go, you know, what seems really important uh, to moose hunters in the provinces is not that they get like a 60 inch bull. It's that they get to go moose hunting and they can go moose hunting every year. They're not interested in a giant trophy. They're interested in going moose hunting with their family every year. And you're like, Oh, isn't that interesting? So then it's like, okay, if that's what you want, you know, what are you willing to do here and to do there? And, and you're choosing that package, that moose hunting package, like, like you would a car. Right. Yeah. And, and it's going to vary. Like I said, there, there's a lot of heterogeneity. So there will be people in the population that want a 60 inch moose and there will be people that just want a moose. Right. And so what we're trying to suss out is where, where does the average person sit and how much heterogeneity is around that average person on either side of it. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a trade-off in all of this stuff. Um, and same with, you know, we'd all love to have moose in our backyard. We'd love to be able to go hunting moose every year. And we'd love to be go out, see tons of moose, not see another hunter and have a great experience. Well, that's not reality, right? So it's like, do you want to see other hunters and go often? Or do you want to see few hunters and go hunting very seldom? So, yeah. So you, you've got the gist of it. I mean, that's essentially what we're asking in a kind of a complicated, you know, uh, the stats are super complicated on it, but, but that's the gist of it up front for sure. Okay. Awesome. Um, so do you want to walk us through that one? Yeah. There? Kind of what, sure. What, uh, sure. Yeah. what, what yeah, you so uncovered a, about moose hunters? Yeah. So there's a whole them? bunch of, whole bunch of data yeah a whole bunch of data before this that we looked at and examined just to make sure that the findings weren't biased and that people were being consistent but to make a long story short we looked at five attributes they're called so one is the harvestable surplus so that's how many moose are available for you know resident hunters in bc and so that number you know in the 70s and 80s was well north of 10 11 12 000 moose a year were available to resident hunters every year that number by, I think, 2017 had declined to 4,000, right? So, Mark, your dad and even you probably lived in a time when there was a general open season for moose. There were a lot of moose in the province. There were a lot of moose hunters. And elk in the moose. same year. You could get both. Right. <laughs> right, right. So there was a lot of moose on the landscape. There was a lot of hunting opportunity. And so we looked at the changes in harvestable surplus, and then we tried to figure out how much people were willing to pay for changes in moose. 
the moose population, right? Then there was this trade-off between how often do you want to go hunting versus the likelihood of harvesting a moose. Because there's a trade-off in that too, right? Like I said, we can let you go hunting every single year, but have super low odds of harvesting a moose. So our spike fork moose seasons in BC are a prime example. Or we can say, well, we're going to flip this around. You're only going to get a moose draw once every 10 or 12 years, but when you go, you're just about guaranteed to harvest a moose. Okay. So so that's the second attribute and trade-off. The third one was around governance. And this doesn't come up a lot in the literature, but um, I mean, there's no question that people are not happy about the way wildlife is being managed in British Columbia, right? <laughs> so, so, so we gave people to, an option, to put it, right? to put it mildly, <laughs> right? So we gave people an option. You can keep it status quo, i.e., essentially elected officials manage moose, um, or you know, it's delegated authority, or you could have a thing like a game commission, which we see all over the United States, which is kind of people who are elected or appointed um, who put decisions up. Uh, you know, usually they hunt and fish. It's an old system in the States. And really it was, it was started because elected officials in part recognized that they knew nothing about fish and wildlife management. And so they should have some people on the ground that can talk to hunters and anglers that know what they're doing. Um, and then there was the proportion of license fees that were dedicated to fish to moose management right now, only about 20% of your license goes into the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation. The rest disappears off into the ether of general revenue. Um, that was flagged as really important. And then the payment vehicle, which is really how much you're willing to pay, right? So harvestable surplus, we went from basically 5,000 moose to 12,500 moose. Those were the, the degrees of change. For opportunity, that also changes dramatically because when you have more moose, you get to go hunting more often, right? And so there's a whole bunch of math that I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to go through, but essentially we looked at that trade-off as well through those different levels. Governance piece we already talked about. Proportional license fees was, it was either 20% dedicated, which is what we get today, 50% of license fee dedicated, or 100% of the license fee dedicated, right? So those were the three options for that. And then the last one was the moose license fee itself. And it varied based on um, a bunch of, pre kind of some focus groups that we did. And then also we did some surveys, uh, some pre-test surveys as well. And so the moose license fee varied anywhere from $25 to $500. So that's kind of mm -hmm. like, that's kind of like the car. So the car can have very few moose to a lot of moose. It can let you go hunting more often with a lower chance of success or less often with a, a, a higher chance of success. It could have different governance models the, the proportion of the license dedicated to moose management can change. And then the moose license fee itself can change, right? And I think that's the really important part because, you know, everybody's going to want more moose. Everybody's going to want to go hunting more often. But the question is, what are you willing to pay for that, right? Are you really willing to say, yes, I'm going to do that. Here's what I, here, here is what I'm willing to pay. And so that's really what we got at through the survey. And then a bunch of this stuff, we tested it afterwards as well, just to confirm that our results were correct. Yeah, because so. <laughs> one, one of the options there, the car models would be, are you willing to pay 500 bucks for a moose tag? 100% of that goes into moose management and conservation, but you might only get to hunt once every five years. Right, right. And then somebody's like, well, I'm not going to pay that much 
so that other people can have successful hunts like uh, that i i can just see a lot of like you know they're that the, the you got to go through your brain and your values and go am i answering this for me or am i kind of answering it for the betterment of the resource and 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 other hunters opportunities as well and it's kind of this I could see having the two little characters on your shoulder and it's just like, no, just moose hunt for yourself. No, what about the grandkids? You know, it's sort of like, you know, so th yeah. th that's, this is interesting, like learning about. Yeah. And so that's the, that's hunters. the great, that's the great part about this is we give people these choices and then through statistics, we can figure, figure out where their brains are really at. And so, you know, hunters, our respondents would, would only get three, three of those cards. There was a big survey ahead of that. that asked a bunch of questions, but literally you'd get three cards that said, here's the status quo. Here's an alternative reality. Which one do you prefer? And the alternative reality, of course, that, that change, that has to go through a model as well to come up with a whole bunch of different outcomes and different cards. There's th there were thousands of different cards delivered and you'd only get three of those. So, so you're not gaming the system. You're, there's no fatigue, respondent fatigue. There's a whole bunch of things that we're controlling for. But basically, you, you would get three different cards as it relates to the choice experiment. And you would pick, I want what I have today versus I want an alternative. And then through all of these different things, we essentially estimate what people's preferences are and then how much they'd be willing to pay for these changes. So that's, I guess, the exciting part is the willingness to pay for changes. That's what everybody wants to know. And people usually don't want to know all the geek math unless you're, <laughs> unless yeah. you're on a committee and interested in this stuff. But, no, yeah. that's, uh, okay. So what, uh, what did so, you learn? Right. So, so we ran a whole bunch of different models and again, People are not going to get that excited about this, but just to cut to the chase, essentially, you know, the baseline as of 2018 was about, I think we used 5,000 moves, maybe it's 2017. So 5,000 was the baseline. They knew that in the past, resident hunters had harvested up to whatever it was, 12,000 moves. Basically what they said is in addition to the current tag, um, individuals would be willing to pay another $25 per thousand additional moves. So if we have 5,000 moose right now, if we had 6,000 moose available for harvest on the landscape, people would essentially be willing to double their license fee. Does that make sense okay. so far? Okay. Mm -hmm. So so depending on success rates, uh, X number more hunters are going to be able to go out and get a moose. People could see that and go, that's a good thing. That's kind of what we want as a hunter. Well, yeah, and this okay. So this was in, this was okay, dependent on the success and the draw, but it was independent. It was actually independent of this opportunity versus hard of harvest trade-off. So we controlled for that as well. Okay. So essentially, okay. this question, this question for you is really, if we went out and made more moose, and there were a thousand moose available, additional moose available, the average hunter would be willing to pay another twenty-five dollars and sixty-six cents for their tag. So okay. if we go from five thousand moose to six thousand moose we can double the license fee. That's essentially what that says. Okay. Fair the, enough. Um, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's not a, a, you know, a doubling of the moose population, but hunters willing to pay twice for a tag. So that's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, basically what they're saying is if you increase the moose population, make more moose available for harvest, we're going to pay more for our tags, right? Which theoretically could mean more money for conservation. Um, as it related to this trade-off between 
how often you get to go hunting versus your success rate, that actually showed up as negative. And so how we interpret that is that the current average, you know, wait time to go hunting, people want to actually go hunting more often than they currently do. So people, people made a conscious choice to say, I know that my chances of going and harvesting a moose will go down, but I just want to go hunting more often. And so I think that the willingness to pay was negative $17 and I'd have to really like geek out hard on the math for you to show you how it works. But long story short, the message from hunters was we're okay not having our having our harvest success reduced if we can go hunting more often. Okay. So just just the opportunity to be out there participating yep. in hunting was important to people. Yeah, yeah, what they're saying is we're not happy with the way it's working right now and we want to be able to go hunting more often even if it means that we're not going to harvest a moose. And so there's a few ways to interpret that too, right? We didn't necessarily t- go hard after the the post question. That could mean yes, like exactly what you're saying. I just want to be able to go out hunt, enjoy enjoy it, go hunting more often in my lifetime and maybe not get a moose. The alternative is you know, the individual hunters could think that they're better than the other hunter, right? And so they might say, yeah, well, on average, the success is going to decrease, but I'm a really good hunter, so the success for me probably isn't going <laughs> to decrease, right? There's there's two well, interpretations of that. There's definitely, right. there's definitely <laughs> tons of secondary data that supports that people really want the opportunity to go hunting because when we have these things like spike fork moose season, we see huge participation, Right. And so that kind of drives at this opportunity thing, same with antler restrictions and stuff. So, um, you know, so the data that we have tends to suggest that people want to go hunting more often, even if they don't get, you know, even if they don't harvest something, but there, there is another possible alternative, you know, competing hypothesis around that. Okay. Well, so um, I'll bring you that after the the commercial break, (laughs) part two of the episode will reveal yeah. So, so those are the two around the, um, around the, the governance. So again, we gave them the status quo, which is essentially elected officials making decisions, you know, that's delegated, but it's a political environment. We talk about things like grizzly bear hunting, peace moose, sheep in the Kootenays, right? Uh, it's, it's heavily influenced by the political machine. So we gave people that one. We gave them a game commission, which is similar to what goes on in the States. And we gave them what's called a, we call it a multi-government, multi-stakeholder commission. And of course, BC is very nuanced because we have federal and now provincial legislation around um, First Nations rights and um, legislation that supports them. And so the multi-government, multi-stakeholder commission was essentially, you know, you would have a commission that included both nations, you know, BC and um, First Nations, and then you would have stakeholders involved, including industry. So those were the two alternative governance choices. And so the um, multi-government, multi-stakeholder commission netted out at $65 per tag, and the game commission netted out at $124 per moose license fee. So anywhere from essentially two and a half times more um, to about five times more than the current license price. So would this be correct to say what that's saying is hunters are willing to pay more if they had a moose governance model that was anything but what they have right now? Yep. 
Yeah, that's basically it. That's that's part of the message is they're like, give me anything other than elected officials managing moose or wildlife, and we want to see that, right? That's that's part of it. It's like I, I think part of the message is they're finding the, the current environment pretty abysmal, and they're saying give us an alternate, alternative. The multi-government, multi-stakeholder commission, we can test how much heterogeneity, how much change there is in the population for these willingness to pay estimates too and there are definitely people in the population that were really opposed to that right so there were people that on average everybody's willing to pay more to have that approach but there were a lot of people who were heavily opposed to that right so you know you get into the tails of the distribution anything and you have people on either end of that spectrum. So the game commission was really solid, not a lot of standard deviation around the, around the mean. Um, the multi-government, multi-stakeholder commission definitely had a lot more, a lot more um, standard deviation. Right. So, I mean, in saying it in a sensitive way, there is an aspect of the non-Indigenous hunting community in BC that has concerns about indigenous people making decisions about their hunting opportunities i i would just from my understanding of people that that's a a fear so you're seeing in that idea of managing moose in the province there were more people in your surveys that kind of said the average said yeah that's not a bad idea and then a lot of strong nope i don't like that idea okay yeah, it's not that there's a lot. It's that I would say that you're going to have some that are going to be very vocal. That's that's what yeah. you get out okay. of that heterogeneity yeah. is that. Now, the yeah. interesting part about that is, you know, you know, I, I kind of think people from Canada always look to the U.S. and kind of, you know, idolize the way they manage wildlife, the money, highway crossings in Nevada and all, all this great stuff that they do. And they have the Game Commission model um and so if i understand right like in a state of like oregon it has a game commission that'll have like eight or nine commissioners on it that kind of like they're not really representing different parts of the state but it's kind of like that they kind of are bringing different perspectives from different you know regions and and that's supposed to be a little bit of the balance in the game commissioners sort of, I guess, making the final decision on hunting regulation changes, you know, those particular things. And so I could see hunters going like, hey, we like the way they do that in the U.S. It's not politicians, it's this game commission. But recently, especially in the last 12 months, we've seen some really heavy politics going on with game commissions in the U.S., like in Oregon, where they they kind of fumbled around with the bear management plan. They let it lapse and then went, oops, hey, sorry, you know, you can't have a spring bear bear season because of the way the law is written and stuff. And certain people being appointed to the commission that had didn't like spring bear hunting and stuff. So I, I wonder if if we were to run that again right now, if hunters here would be sensitive to that dynamic that was going on down in the U S and maybe would be a little more leery of it. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard to say. We did do a whole bunch of kind of upfront, you know, questions to understand people's level of knowledge. 
And it didn't necessarily seem that everybody knew exactly what went on in the United States around commissions okay. and commissions. Like I said, there's, there's plenty of literature, but commissions were really started because politicians did not understand fish and wildlife management and hunters and anglers. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the commissions in the States, they're appointed, but they, they, they make recommendations to whoever is responsible to the governor, whoever is responsible. So it's, it's still, there's still some political, you know, stuff in there. But I think when you go against the game commission, you're probably um, up the Creek without a paddle pretty quick down there. Um, but I think part of it is just the relatability factor. And so as it related to government governance too, like we looked at all of these different models and how our respondents viewed government, right? So we looked at, you know, there's some literature that points us to like, you know, what's important as it relates to governance around fish and wildlife management. And then we kind of adapted it for moose. We looked at, you know, what's really important, first of all. And so the most important thing that respondents said is conserves habitat and wildlife for future generations. That was number one. Number two was make science-based decisions. Number three was is truthful, fair, and can be trusted. And then four was spends money wisely. Five is communicates and listens, right? So those are the important things. So the things that really come out strong is conservation, science-based, and even the truthful and fair stuff yeah, it's important, but it's not as important as the first two, right? And communicate and listens was the least important. So that kind of tells me, you know, it's really funny in BC and probably in other jurisdictions where it was like, you didn't consult, you didn't do this, blah, blah, blah. If communicates and listens is the lowest priority, that tells me that when people are are complaining about consultation, it's that they don't like the outcome, not the input, right? So <laughs> if everything was going fine, people would be like, it's fine. You don't have to ask me about it. But because it's such a mess in BC, you know, everybody's putting their hand up saying, you didn't consult us, you didn't do this properly. Well, it's really, I think, more of a surrogate of they're screwing up the decisions. That's why people are getting so bent out of shape, as opposed to, I really, I really need to have someone listen to me. I don't, it doesn't seem as important. So we looked at those. So those were the, you know, those five things. And then when we tested those, we actually overlaid those onto these three different governance systems. So we looked at these five criteria and overlaid them on the three government systems. The the status quo around elected officials, I mean, it's just negative. Like it's in the red everywhere. <laughs> like, like there is just like it was so it is so negative. You know, the charts, the charts that we made are just like I had to blow them up just to make room because you know, game commission is super positive. The multi-game multi-stakeholder is generally positive. And uh, the elected officials one is just like completely negative, what, like pretty much in the red the whole did, time. Did your participants fill out that survey? Uh, what year? So it would have been, I think, the spring of 2022. Winter, winter, February of 2022 is my guess. I can't even okay. remember now. Okay. It's either then or it was 2021. Mm. <laughs> okay. It's been such a so long time. So obviously, obviously post-grizzly bear hunt decision, closure. I'm just wondering yep. if uh, if people would have been influenced by the closure and reduction of moose and caribou hunting in in the northeast part of the province that that was. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of factors like grizzly bears could have played a role, but I mean, the other interesting thing is it was consistently just so negative on all aspects. Like, and this was related to moose, right? Um, I think mm-hmm. people in BC, I just really get the impression they're just dissatisfied with, with fish and wildlife management. 
period, and really dissatisfied with elected officials. So, okay. so yeah. So anyways, like I guess the results, we backed up those results and we asked people questions after the choice experiment and before. And um, as it related to elected officials, like even, even before the choice experiment, we asked them, what's your, what would be your preferred model? Elected officials was 6.6% of respondents first choice. Right? So those were, the, those were the elected officials that were also hunters participating <laughs> yeah. in your survey. Yeah, yeah. Vote, for, vote for the MLAs. Yeah, they're good people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, 6.6, 61% for the game commission and 32% for the multi-government, multi-stakeholder commission. So, I mean, we tested this not numerous times and it just, yeah, it came back. Like there's just no support for the status quo, I got to say. Wow. So, and yeah, and as you say, well, I mean, it's like, it, give us anything other than. I mean, it's yeah. in, in, in you've shown us a lot of this over the years, you know, uh, black-tailed deer harvest on Vancouver Island, like, you know, in the tens and thousands of deer, like in the, in the eighties and now just, you know, in, in the low thousands kind of thing, moose hunters, you gave those numbers from harvests of 12,000 plus moose to a few thousand moose, um, just species by species, region by region, you know, you go around the province and there's, there's decades and a gen and two generations of people that have experienced some significant changes in hunting opportunity and harvest rates. And, and, uh, yeah, I can completely, completely understand, uh, I think where participants are coming from from on this, even if you've got a, you know, the 60 year olds and the, and the 30 or 40 year olds that are filling this out, they're like, no, we know we've felt it in our region. So. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that way. So yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the governance one. So we did, we beat that up okay. big time and, and uh, it was consistent the whole way through before the choice experiment, after the choice experiment, understanding what was important to people, understanding how they saw it rolling out under different governance models. So, so yeah. just, just to come back to that one. So the, the scenario here is if you had a game commission that was managing wildlife or moose, participants said they were willing to pay more for a moose tag, hundred and Yep. So it would have been was. yeah, one hundred and twenty-four dollars and sixty-five dollars, okay. which would be in in addition to the current to the current fee. And under the multi-government stakeholder model, they were willing to pay sixty-five dollars yep. for a moose tag if they knew they were hunting in a management structure of co-government. Okay. Yep. Yep. Co-government, cool. but I think the important part is. I think, you know, I think the other part is they want to see people that are relatable involved in decision making, or at least in putting decisions up. That's the other piece is, um, I think elected officials, I mean, there's just so much distrust, I think. And also it's unrelatable, right? Like it's very, I think for hunters, um, elected officials are unrelatable at this kind of point in, in our history. Okay. So they kind of want to, okay. they kind of want to see themselves being represented. And I mean, that's common in, in governance literature as well as it's like, I want to have a voice. I need a, I need a venue to have my voice heard in that. And I want someone who's legitimate kind of representing my interests. So I think that's, I don't think it's out of the norm. I think the signal, the strength of the signal is, is, you know, pretty amazing, but, um, but yeah, I think it's common. Okay. Hmm. So 
so that gets us through the governance part and then the share part, which was the proportion of license fees dedicated um, to Moose management. So said it's $25 right now. The marginal willingness to pay goes up to 114, but we got to adjust for that because the 25 is built in. So it's an additional $91 essentially. So almost four times more than the current license just by dedicating 100% of the fees. So like, you know, so, so I guess part of the message is you go in and meet with the minister. It's like, we're here today to tell you that there are people that want to pay more tax, which, which elected officials never hear, but there's a caveat, but all of that tax needs to go back into taking care of moose. So we could potentially, you know, increase a moose license for LEH. When we just tested bull moose LEH, we can increase it basically by five times just by dedicating the license fee. That's what hunters are. That's what hunters are telling us. And, and so hunters are saying my money is going 100% back into putting the thing that I just took off the landscape back on the landscape, making life better for, for moose, making more, more moose. Yeah. No, I, yep. I, 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 I could see why people, you know, feel that I, and I would assume there's probably a, there's an upper cap there somewhere where even the person with the best of intentions in conservation is going to see that, you know, 500, a thousand, 2000 for a moose tag. Sure. Great. More money for moose management, better moose, uh, you know, on the landscape, but then hunting becomes elitist, uh, where then a bunch of people have to start dropping out because they simply can't afford, uh, a moose tag if they got drawn. So, yeah, yeah, like I said, in the heterogeneity, like we definitely saw people, you know, on the on either end of the spectrum. Like there were definitely so we did a whole bunch of follow up work because we had so much data. Um, we did a little bit more around the design um, and looked at interactions. Anyways, it was kind of like on one end, uh, it was like you know, male identifies as a trophy hunter. They were willing to pay the big bucks, and I think at the far end of the spectrum, I think was female. Um, living in the lower mainland. So we were able to look at all of these different variables in terms of where people live, where they put in, you know, how they how they self, you know, identify as a hunter. And so, yeah, there's shades of gray all across the spectrum. And like I said, this is just the mean. This is just the average person. So on either side, you're going to have people that are willing to pay more and you, you'll have people that drop out. That happens for sure when okay. we take the okay. average. Yeah, huh. yeah. Yeah. But even cool. that one around the proportional license, like we asked that before the choice experiment and same thing, like, you know, less than 4% of people, um, you know, if, if 20% of the fee is dedicated, like it is right now, 4% of the people selected that 63% selected a hundred percent of the license fee going into moose management. So like very strong signal on this one, all throughout, um, all throughout the research, all throughout the survey. Okay. So what is a moose tag 25 bucks? Yeah. In in the province. Okay. So yeah. currently right now it is it like $7 or 5 bucks it goes five. in $5 of 25 goes back into it doesn't go back directly to moose management. It goes directly back to conservation projects and this was kind of comes back to I guess to a little bit of what we were talking about before the show but that five bucks could get used for a um a 
putting up bat houses um, or moving salamanders across a busy highway during during the so it, it goes into a pot which is used for conservation um, which I don't think hunters historically in North America have ever had a problem with their dollars supporting non-game species it's just what we do because we enjoy all of that stuff when we're out there we'd like to see a porcupine when you know when you go hunting in the fall or whatever it's cool or a, an eagle or whatever but I think when push comes to shove if it's my dollars then I want it to be I want to know that it's stewarding the things that we're taking from the landscape and, and I think hunters would would uh would probably have some thoughts around you know how that money's getting used as well but yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, you can, you can needle right down. We just picked moose too, cause moose is a good surrogate. It's been in decline. People should know about it. There's been tons of reports. And I mean, yeah, you can definitely dive down. And we did ask people like, where do you want the money spent? It wasn't through a choice experiment. It was through the survey. Um, and that, that was highly variable as well. Right. The usual stuff, um, ecosystem restoration, i.e. controlled burns, uh, managing poaching, uh and unregulated hunting uh what else came up the usual the usual predators were right up there yeah there was yeah. A, we asked a whole bunch of questions around that okay. stuff okay the other thing you know just just to we did have so in this stuff you identify people that always you know that are essentially protest respondents that will have like a willingness to pay of zero who purposely like are really angry and hit the hit the red button all the time. <laughs> and so you always have those, right? And so it's like, okay, how are we going to deal with this and how are we going to understand with these people? So we gave them like a second, you know, it was an online survey. So if they if they punch the red button, we we're able to send them to another thing and basically say, you know, what's your agreement like like you you've you've essentially protested. We had better language, right? But, you know, why? Why is that? Right? So we ask, you know, I, you know, what statement do you agree with? I can't afford to pay more. I'm satisfied with the current moose population. Don't believe anything can be done to restore moose numbers. Government can't be trusted to apply any extra revenue to moose enhancement. Do not believe this research will have any influence on government policy. Do not believe the researchers understand hunters and hunting. So this was kind of like a, if you're really mad and you hit the zero button all the time, we're going to send you somewhere else to, to try to understand why you you were essentially protesting. Well, you're just trying to screw up survey. the survey. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. And so, so the, the one that came back consistently was that, you know, the government couldn't be trusted to apply any extra revenue to moose enhancement. So that was like the most important one. And if people said, I can't afford to pay more, we kept them in the sample. We also tested with all of them in the sample, removed them, all those sorts of things. But again, like really what this points at, um, you know, is that people, people are not, they don't trust the, the government to do right by wildlife. Like I think it was, yeah, it was like 60% of, of what we had identified as protest votes. You know, they said we don't trust the government as their most important factor, right? So I don't, I don't want to give them any more money because they're just, they're going to, yeah, do something else yep. with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So, and there's more into that's that. Sad. Older people. It, that's well, yeah. sad that we're at that state. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have so, any yeah. idea kind of, of, of like what proportion were like protest votes? Was it like 
reasonable or yeah. was it shocking? Yeah, no, no. We had 219 respondents that selected the status quo. So that was like 9.2%. We identified as potentials and then we started and then we looked into why they were selecting the status quo all the time. And so 60% of that. So uh, what is that? You know, I don't know, 100 and something, 140 or something like that. People. Okay. So, so not a ton. You know, not a ton, less than 10% of the sample. But again, it just goes to show you, like, when we test governance, when we look at why people are protesting the survey, like, the the way we manage wildlife through governance comes up multiple times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which which is, is super fascinating to me and also super encouraging that people, that means so much to people in the hunting experience to know that they can trust the people that are managing it. So it's just the public trust doctrine, right? We elect these people that hire people to manage this on behalf of ours, to manage this resource because it belongs to the people. Um, And so that's why it's called public trust doctrine. So when you don't have trust, um, you know, then, then that's a, that's a pretty pretty unfortunate um you know environment to be in but i just think it speaks a lot to like hunter's values that that how their resource is being taken care of is equally important to them as whether they can hunt a moose every year and whether they get one or not because it's theirs it's their moose population and on the other side of it they have to know that if they pull the trigger on an animal there's an entire structure in place where that was not a detrimental decision by that hunter. That's the conservation in the heart of a hunter. And, and, and I find that super fascinating that, you know, um, that that is still a highly valued, um, thing to individual hunters. Yeah. And it was really interesting even around this opportunity piece. Cause we did do, we did a bit more work too around this trade-off and we do see kind of a, smoothing factor as you get really close to being able to go hunt every two years or three years or four years people kind of clump together right um in the sense that it becomes less important how often they get to go hunting and then more important what the success is right so i guess part of it is like with leh for a bull moose it's not necessarily like we don't necessarily have to go hunting every year but people kind of start to get clumped together when they get close to the top and and so, yeah, I don't know. And that's either like, I don't need a whole moose every year or I can share a moose or I, I'm not sure. We didn't really test that, but the opportunity thing, definitely at low levels, people want to go hunting more. But I think as you get, you know, if, if we had 12,000 moose on the landscape again, then things like quote unquote, the quality of hunt become more important to people. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, cause we do hear, we hear quality of hunt and I know that the, the elk stewardship plan for the Kootenays is um, talking about that as well. And I think the message there is, is when things are relatively low abundance, people are looking to go hunting. And as you know, if you have tons of critters, then they start to think about other kind of secondary um, motivations around the hunt. Right. Whether they can drive in somewhere, whether they need to, to walk in and have a base camp and all that kind of experiential parts of the hunts. Okay. Right. Yeah. But yeah. When, when the resource is low, it's just like, I want to get an elk this year or I want to get a moose this year. Oh, I just want to go hunting. Yeah. I just want to go hunting. I want the opportunity to go hunting. And then 
you know, and then when there's lots of animals, then I can, then I can be more picky about the experience. Right. Okay. But okay. if there's only 5,000 moose on the landscape and I can only go hunting once every seven years, like I would rather go hunting once every five years and trade off this, this success rate of harvesting a moose. So, yeah. So I find that's really interesting because mm-hmm. we do, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of opinions, you know, through the spectrum of hunters and through the province. And so this gives us a little bit better footing to, to kind of move us in, in the direction of thinking about how we implement it. Interesting. Um, so was, was that, was that the main, that was the, the last, the last factor, right? Was the, uh, yeah. how much would, would be dedicated to, to conservation. So where are you going with this now? Like, you know, what are you hoping to do with it? Uh, how are you using, you know, the research in the Federation's work, talking to elected officials? Like, like it's easy for master's theses to be, you know, congratulations, pat on the back. They sit, sit on a shelf. I know you're not going to. You're going to be bringing these numbers out and using this to drive action. So so where, what, what is the action plan? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so we, we did go to Victoria and I said like, uh, the, the story behind this is really amazing because elected officials, like, I don't care what government you're in or what part of the world, nobody shows up and says, I want to pay more tax. Right. So I feel like that's a huge part of the story. It's like, look, we can increase, you know, the license price by four times just by dedicating it, which means that you're going to have happier constituents you're going to have better managed moose populations. You're going to have more buy-in. So I think really using this as a baseline for advocacy to get, you know, the province's brain wrapped around a funding model is where it's at. And, you know, we're in June of 2023. The provincial election is in, I think, the fall of 2024. Like that's already on, on my brain and on my team's brain right now. Like they are already planning, you know, how are we going to get the message out to the public? Um, it could include a public demonstration in Victoria because, you know, quite frankly, um, Mark, you and I have talked about this, like hunters and anglers in this province can 100% control the outcome of the provincial election. Uh, I think our elected officials need to be reminded of how important uh, those votes are. And then this gives us more, you know, impetus and more of a push to help fund um, a dedicated funding model for fish and wildlife management. So I think that's kind of the ultimate goal is to get from here to there and just keep piling on the evidence to show that, you know, there's a willingness to pay. It's well supported. Here are the changes people want to see. Um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. It'd be nice to, to be able to go into other species and do similar work. Um, because as I said, everybody has an opinion uh, and the science, uh, you know, in this case is, is fairly clear. So what's a mule deer tag is $20? Deer I think a deer tag is $15, isn't it? What's a mule deer tag, Curtis? Why he tells it? I don't know. I, th- I, thought a, I thought a mule deer tag was, yeah, somewhere up around 20-something bucks. Okay. So if if you, how much more are you willing to pay for a mule deer tag um, if if you knew you could go every year and see lots of big four and five point bucks <laughs> oh it's if if i knew that it wasn't just 
going into general revenue, I'd I'd be oh, that's the fully... distrust in government coming out there already. Yeah. These young and these <laughs> yeah. young folks, jeez. <laughs> oh, I'd I'd be I'd be willing to pay like what guys are paying for a sheep tag, like yeah, you know, fifty, sixty bucks, as long as I knew that all of that was going into the older management. Okay, yeah, or just 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 wildlife management in general. I mean, if the mule deer population's going strong and I'm buying a $45, $50 mule deer tag every year, at least I know that it's like, oh, hey, maybe the elk population's struggling or the moose population or the sheep or whatever. It's like, at least I know that that money's going somewhere useful for future hunting opportunities. And that's the thing in BC, if we're spending money on the land, let's just say like by um habitat enhancement like you know we don't have a tremendous amount of places in the province where if you don't do something for one species it only benefits that species so you know you do a burn in the north you're going to help grizzly bears and moose and black bears and stone sheep and elk and you know and 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 those sorts of things and I, i could see you know that that willingness to pay out of everything that you did in this research if somebody said okay, Jesse, we're going to like set a new moose tag tomorrow. Um, you know, what, what's the roll up here from, from what do you think would be, would get buy-in from resident hunters in the province? If we say we're going from 25 to X, um, under these principles of management now, what? Yeah. I think the big one, the easy one is just to dedicate it. Right. Like all these, these were all super, like they were significant P was less than 0.01 on all of them, right? So none of these, these are no, there's no waffles here. Like, I mean, in, in the hard sciences, like they do not, they do not get these kind of results at all or these kind of in, confidence intervals ever. Um, but to me, dedicating license fees is something that came in super strong. You hear about it all the time. There's tons of evidence to support it. You know, you can increase, um, you know, what's going into conservation for moose hunting by, you know, basically five times for bull moose tags, right? So that to me is like, get it done, do it, right? Even, you know, it's funny, even we even tested the moose licenses ahead ahead of the choice experiment. And I think most people selected $50 for the moose license. It was either 25 or $50. So even without dedicating, so that's in the absence of dedicating, people were still willing, you know, they still thought that the moose licenses were cheap. Right? So So, let's get on with it here, folks. So do you think, do you think that that would kind of be translatable across all the species in the province? The general thing, people be willing to pay more for a whitetail, for a mountain goat, for a caribou? Yeah, I, I really don't know. That's that's where I would like, I would you know that's where I would like someone to to start to tackle that research. But you know, given I mean, given how yeah, given I mean, how you never strong know. these, no, that's it. Pe- yeah. People, but, it could surprise you. People might come out and go, "Wow, people really don't want to pay that much for a black bear," you know, and and like yeah. it was just for whatever reason. There's just this like, no, forget it, or something like that. That, that can always come out of more research. So, so yeah, um, 
I, I, I could definitely see that being important because if you're going to start using this to like sort of do incremental increases across the board, um, you might hit some one species that all of a sudden just blows up because you didn't understand how people uh, thought about that particular species. But yeah, and I, I mean, again, that's the role of science, right? Is to give us, you know, so we can ask questions and try to assess what people's preferences are and how much they're willing to pay and then you know turn that into into a dollar amount right because then then we know then we know i mean i know like going like i said the reason why we did moose was because there's so much demand for moose and there are so few moose hunting opportunities left in british columbia right like it is like the most sought after and i mean in the literature i pulled it up like there was a time where moose meat basically you know moose meat provided more meat than all of the other uh, large mammals combined in british columbia like right. i did a I whole bunch study. of analysis around like the hundreds of thousands of pounds of meat that have gone missing in british columbia for licensed hunters and i mean moose are a huge part of that so i think yeah mm-hmm. so i think with other species you're definitely you know you're not going to be able to copy and paste these results into other species okay. it's going to be nuanced but, yeah but moose has got bang for the buck so to speak Yep. You're drawn yeah, for a for moose, sure. you get paid for it, you know you're going to get 1,000 pounds, and um, that's worth paying a, a lot for. And I think that's, we see that where people are willing to take like three weeks of their annual holidays from Abbotsford and these huge trailers and gear and everything, and they'll go all the way up into like Dawson Creek or whatever and, you know, 20 hours of driving and because and, uh, they want to get a moose. It's just that, yep. it's just that important. No, I... I get it. Huh? Wow. And I I think, you know, like even, yeah, when we looked at the license fee, like it was kind of split. So the majority of people, the highest ranking was $25. They wanted to stick with the status quo for moose licenses. They didn't really want a change, but there wasn't too much difference between $25 and $50. So as a researcher, that's good because that tells us that we kind of know where the baseline is and then we can compare it to our results. Um, but it shows that there is there is probably some flexibility just in the existing tag prices. Um, you know, thinking about the question too, these attributes to me are all really important. Like we refined this, spent a lot of time. The governance piece is a huge one. Uh, you know, if if there was a place where we could get to where everybody was at a round table, taking care of the resource, figuring out how to share it, I think that's the future of wildlife management in British Columbia. Like that's, that's just the way we're going. And I think that's the best outcome, you know, currently the way it's managed as it relates to G to G, it's very interesting because quite often, you know, nations are engaging us and asking us questions about what we like to see or forest policy or predator management or ecosystem restoration and our, you know, with the province of British Columbia is not asking us. Right. So, so nations, you know, they're engaging their communities. They're engaging us through the BC Wildlife Federation asking, you know, what about this? How do we change this? How do we make this better? Meanwhile, our own province is not asking us those same kind of questions. So, so, you know, I think, you know, if we can move to a place where it was a a room that everybody sat at and we all talked about taking care of the resource, I think that's where we need to be. Like, I think there's major conflict that comes in the other approach where the province of British Columbia is off negotiating its own thing without talking to anyone. Yeah. And so that's the whole mistrust piece um, that, that we talked about and dissatisfaction with elected officials making 
you know, key wildlife management decisions in the province. And yeah, that, that one seems like, you know, if you could, you could fix that and get more people happy and more people happy with their MLAs, I think wildlife management would be in a better place to start coming up with some really good plans, getting some, you know, extra money that is raised by hunting clubs behind projects and just kind of get back to where we were in the 70s and 80s where there's just this mm-hmm. general like people are just a little bit more happy and satisfied with wildlife management in the province knowing that the other piece of hunter success and your opportunities will follow if you can see all the right things are in place that all the people are doing the right thing for the right reasons i think we would see a big change in in people's attitudes in the province and 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 i guess their outlook on the future is a big thing i think about too yeah success breeds success i mean you can get it moving and people can see themselves in it um get them on the bus and get moving right i think that's that's a big part of the message too there's a there's a cohesive approach here um so yeah i mean i do yeah i feel like a lot of them a lot of these, all these attributes to me are all very important and it just depends on, you know, what you're trying to do and where you're trying to take it to, to make use of these. And I think it lays a good, you know, it lays a good kind of baseline for research for other species in BC. We spent a lot of time talking, thinking, reviewing the literature around attributes and what to select. Cause there's a lot of other, you know, these choice experiments when they happen in other places, they look at things like how close is it to your house? They look at things like how many roads and, um, you know, like I said, those are important, but those are important when you have a lot of moose right now, we don't have a lot of moose and we're in a place where people are just like, my goodness, I want to go hunting before I tip over and die. And I want to take care of this resource. Right. So the, the perfect, it's the same with mule deer, right? Like you'll hear guys are like, I want to be able to see a 200 inch buck behind every uh, you know behind every tree and it's like well that sounds great first of all it's not possible secondly here is what we would have to do to get to that place in time are you willing to put your money where your mouth is right and the chances are there's a trade-off through that right because there's some major you know there's some major things that need to happen on the landscape that would have to happen from a regulatory perspective right and especially as it relates to deer like you know, you want to grow age and mule deer, you got a major trade-off. You either are going to have to reduce the road density down to like zero, or you can keep it at 2.5 kilometers per square kilometer in a bunch of the province, but you're going to get drawn once every 25 or 30 years. Like, do you want to wait 25 years to go move, to go mule deer hunting? Because those are the choices you're facing. Those are the trade-offs. You either have huge areas with no access where you're going to get age, or you, you know, limit, severely limit hunting opportunity if you want to have age where we have roads, you know, that you can basically spit from in our forests. So those yeah. are kind of the trade-offs. Those are the things you got to face, right? Those yep. are the trade-offs. And, and somewhere between both ends of those spectrum is probably where people are going to sit, but they have to realize that that's what you have to do. That those, you know, those are the life-changing choices that you have to make if you want that outcome. So Curtis, I guess the question is, you know, how would you see that part of it? You know, once in a lifetime odds for mule deer. I don't know. That's 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm kind of with the, the majority and I just would rather go hunting. You know, there's, there's certain, certain things like I'm okay. I mean, I drew, we drew a moose tag back in, I was just first couple of years of high school. So that was 10 plus years ago, 13, 14 years ago. And then we drew on this year. So there's kind of that, you know, 10, 12 years and, and I'm okay with that. You know, if I don't draw a moose tag for another 10 years, that's kind of the, but there's certain things I'm like, I, I do like to have the opportunity to go mule deer hunting every year. Whitetail is kind of out of the question because there's just so many of the things running around. Um, elk would be a little bit kind of on the fence. Like I could elk hunt every year, but even if it was, you know, your draw odds were once every three years, that's pretty reasonable. But yeah, mule deer, I'm definitely, I, I, I'd rather have the opportunity every year yeah, it's really i mean it's really interesting 30 years even, is insane well but i mean even you know and so there's a trade-off there right and so like like mark and and his dad probably got to go moose hunting every year every other year if they wanted and so this is where this whole sh- shifting baseline conversation comes up because it's like what was is not what is right so so your expectations over time that they, they kind of change and you're like okay well that species whereas if you would have talked probably to you know, your grandpa and, you know, talked to him in the seventies and been like, well, what if I told you that you couldn't go moose hunting next year and you won't be able to get to go for another 10 years, he probably would have lost his mind. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm guessing even then too, like with knowing where you guys moose hunt, I'm guessing the odds are probably more like 20 something to one would be my guess. I don't know. Do you recall? I, I think they were, well, I think where we drew last year, yeah, they probably would have been around there. Uh, and, and it was a, it was a group hunt. So we did, did reasonably right. well on a small, small yeah, number so, of tags, so, but. Yeah. So I feel like you probably got lucky. Like you, you, on a 21, oh, yeah. you know, I think it was probably, I don't know all of them, but probably yeah, 20, 25 to one. So you probably got lucky. So really, if we were following the curve, like you're another 10 or 15 years out before you get that draw. So it's yeah. Anyways, it's just, it's just interesting. So a lot of it, like I do see this, like shifting baselines, folks not knowing what was right. We talk, you know, to younger people about, you know, Thompson steelhead, there used to be 5,000 fish. Like people would go there from all over the world, moose hunting in this province. You could pick a tag and go hunting elk hunting in the East Kootenays, right? Way more elk three point season, like all kinds of tags. And, and even then there were tons of hunters, way more hunters than there are now. So it's all a shifting baseline. Same with like bighorn sheep, Mark. How has that changed over your lifetime in the Kootenays, right? Oh, yeah. I know exactly. I mean, we, you know, I remember as far back as I can think as a, as a kid, it was like they consistently harvested the same number of rams every year on a general open season. There were guys that just knew how to hunt sheep and, you know, could consistently find them. And then... All of a sudden, now it's a once in a lifetime draw opportunity, and what? And they harvested five here last year, in in yep. in our region. Where back in the '80s, it was like 60 or something out of out of the region was was kind of like the baseline for the '60s, '70s, and '80s. So there's yep. a pretty big shifting baseline yeah. for you. Oh man. Um, 
super fascinating. Um, just like I said at the beginning of the show, I just see the 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 human mammal and wildlife management is being super critical to understand this because it's it's a real critical part of like Jesse said, how are we going to pay for this stuff? People want science based management. What's our funding model going to be? Um, you know, what, how are we going to manage under the public trust doctrine and stuff? Those, those are, the, the animals aren't telling us that stuff, right? By, by studying them, which is like the glamorous kind of stuff on, on the wildlife science side of thing is, is putting collars on animals, but this is equally, equally as important. Uh, what do humans want, how do humans see it and how do humans want to look after them themselves and the resource to move forward. So, uh, I, love the work that you do and and would like to see more people more scientists interested in in this type of stuff and and not more grizzly bear and wolf research in the province it's important but um yeah need more people on 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 your side doing what you do yeah well yeah so thanks I appreciate everything you guys do. I think it's awesome. And uh, yeah, I uh, love, love hearing the podcast and hearing about the science. And as you said, yeah, it's, it's definitely not nearly as fun as going out and catching grizzly bears or mule deer or going out and lighting some big burns, which we hope to do here next year. But, um, but it they is important. They do do research in the U.S. on whitetails and stuff I've seen on wild turkeys they put GPS trackers on the hunters and on the turkeys. Yep. Yep. And so they're actually looking at the response of turkeys to hunters on the landscape. And it's pretty fascinating that, you know, hunters like to stick close to roads and then turkeys like to stay away from hunters, which are closer to roads. So turkeys are farther away from roads and, you know, and it's just, uh, pretty yep. cool. Maybe yeah, in the next yeah. one you'll get to put some collars on some humans and then put some we, spatial components to. We did look at that around Spike Fork Moose at one point, but um, but it didn't get funded. But yeah, I mean that's the cool stuff when you have a fully funded model. Like the United States are, I'm sure, spending more money on white-tailed deer in a week than we spend on wildlife in a month here in British Columbia. That's that's <laughs> the other that's the other part of it. And then I mean, even as it relates to roads, are with our mule deer the sim deer project like the other interesting thing that that chloe's been finding is that your risk of dying increases the closer you get to a road no yep. but what's even more interesting with that is that it's not hunters that are killing deer mm -hmm. yeah yeah so same there's with, a lot to the roads same with their grizzly bears wildlife. a lot to the roads yeah. yeah 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 um well cool um jesse thanks so much uh you know i think a really encouraging part of what I've heard today today with, with your research is there's this time-honored tradition, I think, that goes back to, you know, the beginnings of sort of North American hunters being, you know, here under the European kind of model, the North American model. Um, hundreds and hundreds of years later, hunters are still willing to say, um, we want to hunt and we're willing to pay and we expect the public trust doctrine to be upheld. And I think that's been an ethos that uh, I think hasn't changed. I think, you know, if you look at, a, at it from a bigger picture, your research to me is, is also validating that 
that ethic that's been in hunters in North America for hundreds of years. And it's like, yep, we'll shoulder the burden, but just do a damn good job with our money is kind of what, what people said hundreds of years ago and what they're still saying today. And, and uh, hopefully we can get back to doing a damn good job. And you're doing a damn good job as the executive director of the BC Wildlife Federation if anybody's going to make some of this stuff happen. And um, raise some, some eyebrows and, and see some change. It's, it's going to be you and appreciate what you're doing, uh, here in BC for the Federation. Awesome. Well, thanks you guys. Looking forward to hearing more episodes. Keep up the great work. No, we're having, we're having a fun. Thanks. <laughs> Take it away, Curtis. Right on. Honor Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. As always, Thanks to the folks down at Alpine for their continuing support. Their dealership's getting closer and closer by the day. I, keep, I drive by, but going to Home Depot and Home Hardware and all the hard. I've been doing a lot of projects, chicken coops, and stuff for work. So, been driving past the new dealership quite a bit. It's it's uh it's well on its way. So that's something to look forward to from the folks down there. But yes, we are always grateful for their continuing support. Also, check us out on Patreon patreon.com slash the hunter conservationist we have sweet content on there we got the hunters underground podcast we got some older episodes of the hunting diaries podcast uh what was the latest underground we just did bear meat yeah that's right yeah yeah so that's yeah, a cool i got one, somebody so. that wrote us and was like i think we might have undercooked it what am i what are we supposed to do so we're like let's make a podcast out of this as well so <laughs> nice they 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 live they're fine so yeah no. so check it out folks we appreciate all the patrons that are already on there supporting us that's just another way to help us bring you guys the content that we do so thanks to those folks thanks to alpine Anything else we got going on? Nothing crazy yet, hey? Nope, nope. I uh, got a slew of podcasts coming between now and next week, which will uh, take us out to probably middle of beginning of August, I think, for for episodes. So got some more scientists coming on. Cool, cool stuff coming up. Uh, a little bit more on lead lead shot and lead ammunition and some stuff like that. So got uh, got some return guests coming back for that here pretty quick and. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Alpine. Thanks, BC Wildlife Federation, for giving us Jesse's time. And Jesse, thank you for coming back on the show. And uh, look forward to having you on again. All right, everybody, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>